Good morning. Is that better? Oh, man, I've been gone for a little while. I forgot how to use this thing. Um, man, it is so good to be back. Um, so good to be with um, the church family here at Mission Point. Uh, for those of you who are guests, again, a special welcome. Uh, my name is Kondo. I get to serve as one of the pastors. And uh, don't mind my voice as it continues to take some adjustments. Um, we'll figure it out here um, as we go. But I've been gone for a number of weeks, and uh, so it is always just extra special uh, to be back and uh, uh, to see everybody. And um, so, man, I've, I've missed you all, and uh, I, I enter back in with the privilege this morning of concluding a, a series that we've been in for the last number of weeks that we have called The Truth About. And uh, the truth about it is really a series that's built uh, around the idea that we are living in, in a time in which there is tension and controversy that is dividing this nation in unique ways. And if you've been paying any attention to the news headlines for the last number of months, and you've noticed that they are really volatile, very emotional, very tense, very controversial topics that have the nation pitted against each other, pulling us in opposite directions. And that's happening around conversations about uh, a race. It's happening around conversations uh, about the, the you know, election cycle. It's happening about the refugees, about terror. What are we going to do about that, about the immigration issue, the refugee crisis, gun control? There's just an unusual storm of controversial issues that is pulling us apart. That in and of itself is concerning. Uh, but the reason we entered into this series is because of a concern as leaders in the church, that these issues are not just threatening to divide and to pull the nation apart, but they're beginning to divide and to pull the church apart. Those of us who ought to be the most united, those of us who ought to be the greatest, um, you know, proponents of unity are starting to find ourselves pulled apart around the same issues that are pulling the nation apart. And something in us is stirred to say, no, that the church ought to be different. The church ought to be light. We are called to be salt in the world. And so what does it look like for us to enter into some of these controversial um, conversations that surround us and be light in the midst of them. And so we've been asking, you know, what does the Bible say about some of these issues? And what would our Savior Jesus have to say about some of these tense issues? And, and how should the church respond? What should our posture be? Um, and um, so we do. We want to conclude uh, the series here this morning by spending a little bit of time addressing some of the issues surrounding the racial tension that seems to be escalating, um, especially as it relates to the Lives Matter hashtag movement. Um, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about what that means, but I'm sure you've heard it. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Hashtag Blue Lives Matter. Excuse me. Hashtag All Lives Matter. No, no, no. Hashtag White Lives Matter. But we can't really say that, but we're thinking it. 
And the tension continues to rise. And if I'm honest with you, I wonder if it's not escalating to the point where I'm going to see a civil war in my time. It's crazy. That in and of itself is concerning. But of greater concern is when the church starts to enter in and starts to voice some of this vitriolic violence verbiage around race. And so we want to talk a little bit about a tension that's been brewing afresh for a number of years and is ready to explode. And we want to ask, can we be light in the middle of it all? Um, For those of you who've been on vacation for uh, a number of years, let me attempt to just give you some um, recent history um, headlines to kind of catch you up a little bit. Um, February 2012, uh, a 17-year-old unarmed black teenager uh, gets into a physical altercation, a scuffle with a 28-year-old half-Hispanic, half-white coordinator of a neighborhood watch in a gated community in Florida. They get into some scuffle, and in the midst of that scuffle, the 17-year-old teenager is shot fatally in the chest. Dies on the spot. The 28-year-old man, George Zimmerman, claims self-defense. And because of the stand-your-ground rule in Florida, he is released and no charges are pressed. When word gets out, there is an outcry. There is outrage. And so as a result of the outrage, I think, and as a result of the pressure, about six weeks later, George Zimmerman is found and he's charged with second-degree murder. And the trial goes to court, and no sooner has it gotten to court than he is released again. All charges dismissed. He's exonerated. In response to that, there is outrage, particularly among the black community. Responses start to pour in, very emotional um, responses. One of the responses uh, came from a group of three African-American women, black community um, organizers. One of them in particular, uh, Alicia Garza, point, you know, she, she posted almost this, this letter to African-American people on Facebook. And in that note, she used the phrase, black lives matter. One of the other three ladies added a hashtag to that. The third lady said, this is good, and a movement was born. Uh, the, the Black Lives Matter became this rallying cry um, for equal treatment of African Americans, particularly by law enforcement and by the legal, the justice system. Uh, flash forward a little bit, July uh, 2014. Um, and by the way, o- over the course of the next um, year or so, three other unarmed black teenagers are shot um, by law enforcement officers, and, and they're killed. And so um, there's grief and there's, there's quiet outrage in those communities, but headlines are recaptured in the summer of 2014. 
when a, a 43-year-old black man, Eric Garner, in Staten Island, New York, is um, taken into custody. He's um, arrested. It's not even necessarily um, taken into custody, but he is strangled to death by a police officer who is attempting to restrain him. Uh, the whole thing is captured on video, so when a grand jury just dismisses this uh, particular police officer, you can imagine there is outrage. In fact, on that occasion, tens of thousands of people um, protested in New York City holding Black Lives Matter banners and many of them chanting, I can't breathe, which were the famous last words of Eric Garner before he died. So the Black Lives Matter movement grows a little momentum. It grows a little pace as racial tensions continue to rise. Now, in New York City, the primary protests are peaceful, but some rogue numbskulls turn it violent. Um, they even on occasion attack police officers in the process. And so as the Black Lives Matter movement grows, there's a, 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 another movement starting to emerge saying this Black Lives Matter thing is just stirring rhetoric of hate and violence. And it's being used by thugs as an excuse to just loot and cause all kinds of drama. And it's starting to incite violence against law enforcement. It's an anti-white movement that's promoting reverse discrimination. Um, a few weeks later, uh, an unarmed black 18-year-old grocery store robber um, by the name of Michael Brown was shot 12 times um, by a police officer who he appeared to be charging. There's video footage, unfortunately, of many of these incidences. And this happened in Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, the kid died in the street on the spot, and outrage just turned to uprising. And many of you can remember this. The Black Lives Matter movement gained even more momentum and even more voice, more steam. And um, we can, this is recent past for us, but we can remember that over the course of the next week um, or so, protests would shut down the city of Ferguson as violence raged with um, businesses once again looted and fires set to some of these um, companies, while, you know, angry, opportunistic thugs made the most of this moment and just went a little bit crazy. Things got so bad in, in Ferguson, they called a state of emergency. They instituted um, a, a curfew along with it. Fast forward a, a couple of months, April 2015. Uh, 25-year-old black man, he's arrested in Baltimore, Maryland. And um, there's video footage of this as well. Uh, his arms are shackled, and then his legs are shackled, and he's thrown in the back of a police van. And the transportation um, that ensues is what's referred to as a rough ride, in which the police officers intentionally drive carelessly, throwing him back and forth in the back of the van, realizing he cannot protect himself. 
Um, as a result, uh, Freddie Gray um, sustained an injury to his spinal cord that would send him into a coma and he would die a week later. Peaceful protests soon turned violent in Baltimore. Once again, looting and burning of businesses, which led to a state of emergency and deployment of the National Guard. And the Black Lives Matter grew more and more momentum. Now you can imagine... The nation is watching, and they're watching looting, and they're watching fires, and they're watching state of emergency, and they're watching National Guard. And people start to say, again, this Black Lives Matter is just this, this violent, this, this, you know, excuse for the African-American community, the thugs in that community to go crazy. And tension starts to rise racially. And you can probably remember watching the scenes and sights of this and having an emotional reaction one way or the other other as things went crazy in our country, particularly in that particular region. And it was just a few months, a couple of months later, uh, there's a shooting, an execution of nine African Americans in Charleston, um, South Carolina, in that church, and um, by a white male. And when he was asked why he did this, he spouted some um, white supremacy um, language and said, I was hoping to spark a racial war. And he kind of almost succeeded because the nation got caught up in this debate about the Confederate flag and what it represented and what it didn't represent. And again, tension rose and the nation was divided around this issue of race. Uh, going back to New York in 2014, um, in December of that year, a, a black man murdered in cold blood two police officers, Rafael Ramos and Wenjian Liu, in New York City. The authorities spoke out very clearly feeling the Black Lives Matter protests were inciting this kind of anti-cop sentiment. And so, you know, in order to advocate for police officers who were unfairly lumped in with some of these brutal, excessive police officers, a hashtag emerged saying, Blue Lives Matter. Another way to say cops' lives matter, too. Um, the summer of 2015, um, we don't know where this originated, which is interesting. Maybe somewhere in Canada, no one really knows. Um, but in an attempt to bring about a sense of unity, a hashtag emerged that said, wait, wait a minute, all lives matter. And many in the nation love the All Lives Matter hashtag, but there is outrage against this hashtag, particularly by the Black Lives Matter movement. Because they're saying to say all lives matter, it minimizes and it dilutes the unique struggles and the injustices that certain people groups have experienced in this country. It's like a rich person saying all socioeconomic groups matter. That's easy for you to say. If you haven't experienced the pains of poverty, and so they felt it was patronizing, and the tension just continued to escalate 
and escalate and escalate. And then, um, I have no documentation for this, but I have a distinct sense that in the midst of this, one of the unspoken movements started to emerge. Uh, that was the hashtag White Lives Matter movement. Uh, they just seemed to be a, a growing rage in the white community. Um, because, you know, it's okay for everybody else to have a hashtag for their race. But if we have a White Lives Matter hashtag, now we're racist. You can have a black dating site, but if you have a white-only dating site, you're racist. We can't complain about racial injustice because we're the majority. We are still getting penalized for the atrocities of our forefathers against people we had nothing to do with, and we're still paying for it. And there was just a sense that an anger was brewing and starting to kind of bubble over. We're the only ones who have to be politically correct. Everyone can say what they want about us. But if we say something about, you know, those black people, can you even say black, African? Okay, but what's the term? I don't even know. But, but we have to dance around the issues. So we're going to fly our flags and don't mind if some of us like a candidate because he gives us permission to not have to apologize for everything. But no one's going to use the hashtag. But it's bubbling. And even though some of y'all aren't nodding, I suspect you're like, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Preach. Preach. So tension and division just continues to rise. Black lives matter. Nope. Blue lives matter. Nope. Mm, lives matter because we can't say it. Nope. All lives matter. And we are all offended by someone or something and so we take our corners. Now, again, we'll sit in church services and we'll be really polite to each other. And we don't come out and say anything particularly mean. In fact, it's funny the way we do it. Uh, the way we'll do it is we'll, we'll post an article or retweet something on social media and say, hmm, just something to think about. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's interesting perspective. Not yours. Of I'm not saying. I'm just saying. You know, those tweets, those posts, very very amusing. And we did. We started to divide depending on what we chose to look at and what version of the narratives we chose to believe. And it became really fascinating to observe this. And so for somebody who, who looks at the body, the dead body of Michael Brown, they say another unarmed black man killed by a white cop and they take a side. As somebody else looks at the store footage where he robbed and abused the store owner and they say another black thug who got what he deserved and they take a side. And you better not put these two people in the same room, by the way. 
You look at, at the court rulings and you say the justice system sides with another white person. Then you look at the riots and you say, well, thugs using racism as an excuse to loot. I knew it. And that becomes a position. Black Lives Matter is just a movement of reverse discrimination. Blue Lives Matter. Seriously, the cops who are perpetuating the abuse are going to all of a sudden have a rally of their own? All Lives Matter. Well, that's the privileged majority just sweeping the issue under the rug because they have nothing to worry about. And we turn on each other as we take sides. We are at such a volatile place racially. I mean, I can't remember the last time I opened, you know, the news and didn't see something about some racial explosion at some rally or somebody who got shot by somebody else racially stirred or related to it. And so the question becomes, what should the posture of the church be in the midst of all of this? Because if we're honest, and if we've been paying any attention, we know this is a very volatile and very emotional issue. And unfortunately, for, for many of us, we don't even talk about it because if I say what I'm really thinking, oh man, people might think this, but I'm, I'm not that. I just think this about those people, all of them. But I'm not really, well, I don't. And if we were to really give voice to where we were or how we're processing, we would find that division is starting to stir even among us. And how should we respond? Because, again, if the world around us divides around race, that's concerning. But if the church begins to divide over race, that is catastrophic. This agent, the vehicle of hope, if it becomes compromised, this nation is in trouble. And so the question is, how should we enter in and how should we Respond, And so this morning, we want to uh, just take uh, the time we have left to talk a little bit about what kind of posture we ought to hold as Christians. And please hear me. I have no intention of saying how we're going to fix this issue. Um, my concern is how we can maybe be and bring a little more light to the issue simply by our attitudes, simply with our Posture, And so to do that, I want to look at an, an odd story that you may never have read um, in the book of Matthew chapter 15. Um, Matthew chapter 15. If you have a copy of the Bible, just join me there. Um, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, there are some very studly people who will offer you one. So if you need a copy, just raise your hand. Let um, Charlie no, and he'll get one to you. If you don't own one, please keep that as our gift to you. Um, if you do own a copy, feel free to just leave it behind when you're done. But Matthew um, chapter 15, and we're going to start reading this really odd story at verse um, 21. Um, 
Okay, I, I said it was an odd story, right? Okay, good. Um, here's, here's a story, and I think we're going to see some principles that will seem strange to us, but I trust will um, help us take a step towards being light in all of this. Verse 21 says, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, really quickly, um, what may be hard to decipher in this version of the story is that Jesus sneaks into this particular region, this particular area, not for some elaborate ministry purposes, but for some much-needed R&R. So all intents and purposes, you've got to picture Jesus at a bed and breakfast by the beach. He's taking some vacation time, which I wish we had time to talk about how even Jesus did it. So you are in good company. Jesus wants some peace and quiet, so he's chilling with his boys. And so while he's tanning, look at verse 22. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Now, what might be hard to, to decipher in this particular version of the story is, uh, you didn't just say Canaanite, but apparently he did. Matthew does. Canaanite woman, he says. Ah, excuse me? A Canaanite woman? Did you just say Canaanite? Uh, when I was in California last year, and I shared this with um, some of you, I, I ran into the sweetest elderly lady who insisted on calling me a Negro um, when, I, when I saw her. Very, very charming lady. When I was in California uh, last week, I, I worked with a guy who insisted on referring to Asian people as Orientals the whole time. Um, Canaanite is kind of like that. Um, This is the only time it's used in the New Testament because it's kind of like an outdated, an old school derogatory racial term. Canaanite. This is the term Matthew's using in, in your Bible. Now, it's not exactly inflammatory, but it's definitely at least inappropriate and intended to communicate the inferiority or the insignificance of this particular woman based on her race. My boss is a mean honky. Okay, no one says honky anymore, but I can tell you don't like your boss is what's going on here. Um, Matthew's not unaware. He knows how racially charged and outdated, almost ignorant, the term Canaanite is, which is why he uses it. He's alerting us to the fact that, hey, racial tension incoming. So Jesus, he's trying to relax at this B&B when some loud, obnoxious, oriental, honky Negro girl, she shows up. She was a Canaanite. So rude, those Canaanites. Just interrupting vacation. He wants us to know that there was drama and distance and dislike between Jesus and his people and this Canaanite woman and her people. The uh, Canaanites. She was part of those people who the Jews considered insignificant. Pagans who hated our God and and years and generations and generations, they oppressed our people, those K 
Canaanites. Matthew, I love it, by the way, he's humble enough to admit by writing this, I wasn't happy to see her either. I was part of the problem. I didn't like her. Canaanite. Uh, But on top of her appearance, her race, her antics are just straight up annoying to the disciples. We're trying to rest and she won't stop yelling, Jesus, son of David, oh Lord, Jesus, she won't stop. Trying to watch Prince of Egypt on Netflix and and this Negro woman's at the window peering through the blinds talking about, I see you. You know, we're trying to go out to dinner, have a nice meal, and she's just tailing us, talking about, Jesus, I know you can hear me. We go to the beach to tan, and there she is, surprise, you know, following them everywhere they go. Just being a general nuisance, an annoyance. That's the language that's communicated in this story. We don't know how long it lasts. It may have even been days. We just know it's constant and loud and annoying. You know those Canaanites. Until Matthew tells us why she's auditioning for a restraining order. And uh, I'm like, you know, I would probably do the same thing. Apparently, her little girl, and the language insinuates her only child, um, is being tormented by evil demonic spirits, which are powerful angelic beings that have gone rogue, and now they exist uh, to do everything they can to hurt God. And no better way to hurt God than to hurt what he loves, and nothing he loves more than humanity. And if you're going to go after humanity, you might as well go after a little helpless girl, which is what they do. We don't know exactly what these demons are doing to this girl, but from the language, we get the sense that mama has tried everything she knows, and she just can't help the situation, and And now it's just a matter of time before her daughter dies. And so in desperation, she's interrupted Jesus' little vacations, little R&R, to make some noise. And if you've ever seen a desperate mama, then you get what's driven her to come where she knows she's not welcome and rudely interrupt where she's not wanted, showing Jesus all manner of cute little pictures to get him to help her. Now, brace yourself. This next part might make you mad at Jesus. It did when I first read it. Verse 23, Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, "Um, please make her go away. She keeps crying out after us. Have you ever seen that? Jesus doesn't acknowledge this desperate mom's existence. Her daughter is dying and Jesus won't even look at her. Almost as though the louder she gets, the more bent on ignoring her, Jesus is dissed and dismissed in her deepest desperation. I read that story the first time. I'm like, Jesus, love the little children. But Jesus just completely ignores her. His disciples, a.k.a. Peter, are finally over it. And so they plead with him, for the love of you, please put her, and mainly us, out of this misery and tell her to go away. Canaanites are so annoying. Please make her go away. And then Jesus 
he reprimands, he rebukes his disciples for that kind of racist rhetoric. Just kidding. That's not what he does. He adds to it. All right. You don't believe me. Look at verse 24. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. You know what Jesus is saying? I didn't come for those people. I didn't come to help those people. I came to help my people, the Jews. Not only are his words seemingly unkind, he still won't acknowledge this mother. He's talking about her to his disciples, but loud enough that she can hear what he is saying. I'm ignoring her because she's outside the scope of my mission. That's your Savior. You all just sang to him a few minutes ago. It wasn't even that she was messing up his vacation. According to Jesus, it's that she and her little girl weren't on the list of people who were critical to Jesus' mission. Canaanites. By the way, you should study the sequence of salvation sometime. It will blow your mind when you realize Jesus is not lying to her. If you're not 100% Jewish, you are not part of God's original people. I don't know if you knew that. But when you study that, it will humble you. He's the son of David in the line of Jacob. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah sent to rescue his chosen people, the Jews. But thankfully, the Jews went and messed up by rejecting their Savior. And almost as an act of judgment to the Jews, God said, if you're not going to accept my salvation, if you're not going to accept my invitation, watch, I'm going to open the doors and broaden the invitation and let all of these other people come in. That's how you got in. That's how I got in on a glorious technicality. Bottom line, Jesus isn't lying to her. He's in essence saying to her, it's not your time yet. What do you want with me? Kind of like he said to his mom at that party. Woman, don't get me to start doing miracles. It's not time for that yet. So you'd expect this woman to drop her head and and head out, but she heads towards Jesus and she drops on her knees. Look at verse 25. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. (laughs) And then Jesus just takes it to a whole out-of-bounds level. Look at what he says. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Okay, now what might be hard for you to decipher in this particular version of the story is Jesus just called this woman a dog. On the racist chart, there is Canaanite. And then there's dog. And that's the term Jesus uses in a conversation with her, a derogatory racial slur. You know how it goes. My people think your people are less than people, definitely not deserving of equal treatment. Jews are God's children. And then there are those people. And you're one of them. And what Jesus is in essence saying to her is, tell me how it would be right for me to take bread off the children's table and throw it to the dogs on 
the ground, the second-class citizens. And I'm like, Jesus, no, you didn't. Okay, now for sure she's going to let offense win, break off a little righteous piece of her mind and hand it to Jesus. But no, she continues to apparently be the bigger person in this conversation. In fact, she gives one of the most brilliant responses in the whole Bible. Brilliant. Check out what she says, verse 27. She says, yes, it is, Lord. It's not right, Jesus says. She says, and and a, a better translation would be like, okay, let's go with that. And then look at this. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. She says, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. What? No, she didn't. She says to Jesus, dog, okay, let's go with that. Because even dogs get the leftovers that the children don't want. Dog, okay. Because even the dogs get the breadcrumbs that fall from their master's table. Do you know what she's saying to Jesus? She's saying, if I am a dog, then give me a crumb. Because a crumb from you is all I need for my little girl to be made whole. So give me a crumb. I'll take that. I'm not going to argue with any of your rhetoric. I'm not going to argue with any of the drama. I'm not going to get into any of the cultural conflict. Just give me a crumb. Jesus is like, whoa, little lady, where did you come from? Jesus is literally taken aback by her faith. Where did all that faith come from? How did you know to give me such a perfect answer? I'm guessing the spirit is doing some working in this. How did you know that I would be the bread that the children of God, the Israelites, wouldn't want to eat? In fact, they would throw me on the ground to be trampled over and to be crucified. But the Gentiles would come and scoop me up by faith only to find that I am the all-satisfying feast of heaven. How did you know? She's like, I'll take the leftovers. Jesus is so impressed. Look at verse 28. He said to her, woman, not Canaanite, not dog, just woman. You have great faith. Your request is granted. And a daughter was healed at that moment. Go. (laughs) Whatever you wanted, it's done. Your daughter will live to annoy and mooch off of you well into her old age. Don't blame me for that. But go. She is fine. She's like, thank you. She leaves. In your face, Peter, in your face, you know. And she's gone. Um, but isn't that the strangest story? And the truth is, I was a little upset with mean Jesus when I first read this story. Jesus just seemed like a racist bigot in this story until I realized, ah, just kidding. Jesus was testing her the whole time. It's really interesting. Um, And don't you wish that whenever Jesus was 
testing us that he would label um, with an announcement that, hey, this might be a test, so uh, be on your best behavior because this could be me testing you. But unfortunately, he doesn't do that. If you've ever been tested by Jesus, and some of you have gone through some <clears throat> difficult Jesus tests over the last year, but you can testify. When Jesus tests you, if you were to write a biography about that particular situation, Jesus seems like this uncaring, bigoted, unconcerned, somewhere on a beach at a bed and breakfast while our kids suffer, and he doesn't care. He's silent. He ignores us. He doesn't give us any attention whatsoever. He seems to even add to the pain when Jesus tests us. And he's testing this Canaanite woman, to see what her faith was made of, to see if she would walk away because she felt ignored, to see if she would debate Jesus because she felt misrepresented, to see if she would retaliate because she felt offended. Jesus wanted to see, will you press through the silence until you hear me speak? Will you push through the prejudice into my presence? Would she persist to get what she came for from the only one who could give it to her? Or would she be discouraged and derailed? And I do. I think this odd, strange story is helpful for the church in the midst of some of the racial tension and the Lives Matter movement that we are experiencing. I think we do. We learn some compelling but challenging principles um, in this story. And you're going to notice, like you've noticed throughout the course of this entire series, that the things that we are inviting the church to, the things that we are calling us to, the postures that we're encouraging are very simple, very clear postures. Because I think when it's all going crazy, Jesus wants his church to be what he's called us to be and to be about what he's called us to be about from the beginning. But I do, I think some really simple um, <clears throat> principles emerge. Not that will fix the issue, but that will help us to be different in it, to be agents of healing. Um, here's the first thing. Um, in the midst of all that's happening on the racial front, the racial controversy, I would urge us to push past the hashtag. To push past the hashtag. Um, you know what I find so interesting about this little story um, is the way the disciples respond to the situation. And uh, frankly, it reminds me of uh, the way I responded when I first read this story. It reminds me even to some degree of the way many of us, if not most, uh, responded as I retold this little crazy um, story um, in Matthew chapter 15. The disciples get so emotionally escalated over this woman's color and over this woman's conduct. They are up in arms. She's one of those Canaanites. And make her go away because she is so annoying. Her conduct is so unbecoming. Can we just get rid of her, Jesus? 
They get so wrapped up in the shell that this woman comes in that they lose sight of the story that brought her here in the first place. And even as we read this story, if you're honest, many of us got caught up in the drama of her race and her rambunctiousness and Jesus' rudeness, uh, that many of us lost sight of the main point, that this is a story about a desperate mommy whose daughter is dying. Remember that part of the story? Because it's the most important part. The disciples were more aware of the things that robbed them the wrong way about this woman that they lost sight of what was robbing her of sleep. What brought her to this place in the beginning. And I do, I fear that this whole Lives Matter movement and this whole racial tension that we're experiencing has the church so distracted by the color and the controversy and, and, you know, the the conduct of certain people. Well, what race was he? Okay, why why was he running in the first place? And the cop shot how, how many times again? And why do they talk like that? And why do they think they're entitled to this, that, and this? They are so annoying that we lose sight of the fact that Trayvon was Sabrina's little boy. There is a mother who lost an 18-year-old son while we get distracted by color and conduct and hashtag and controversy. And the church has to move beyond the hashtag to the humanity of the people we are talking about. The disciples got distracted and they forgot. And I fear that in the midst of the tension, it's become about peripheral, secondary things. And we've lost sight of the fact that Officer Ramos left his wife and his kids when he was executed in New York. Blue life, black life, whatever, human life who has left behind hurting people. The church cannot forget the narrative of humanity. If I didn't tell you anything about this Canaanite woman, her race, her background, I just told you the story, you realize you would read this story as if she's a mother like you. She's like your mother. Until we start to add, oh, she was a Canaanite and she was this color and she was this color. Oh, that's really weird. And we've got to press beyond the hashtag. Behind black and white and blue are broken people longing to be whole. We've got to lead the way in remembering and reminding that mothers ache and daughters suffer, regardless of what color they are. And so as a church, I think we've got to commit to, to just refusing to reduce humanity to a hashtag. What do you think about the Black Lives Matter? Like, but can we get away from the hashtag? Can we talk about people? Who are you talking about? We've got to refuse to reduce people. To color and conduct, like some other color of your skin or your annoying choices, sum up your story.
Yeah, the thugs, they're just jumping on cars and, and they're looting. Okay, that's true. But what's beyond all of that annoying behavior? Who cares? We are called to care. That's the whole point. Um, uh, man, one of my college mentors tells a story about a girl, little girl on a train in Europe um, in rush hour. Uh, people are coming back from work and they're tired and they just can't wait to get home. And, and she decides that, you know, it's time for me to just run around and make friends with everybody. So she starts running around in the cabin of the train, pulling in people's coats and tugging and poking people and asking them for candy and being loud and falling over and bumping into people. And you can just feel uh, a rising tension in that car as people are looking around and they're starting to get irritated. Like, where is this kid's parents. And after a little while, she runs over to a man who's staring aimlessly out the window and she says, Daddy, are we almost home? Are we almost home? And you can imagine the intensity in that place rises like, wait a minute. So you have been in here while your little girl has been annoying us for the last 20 minutes. What kind of father are you? You should not be allowed to be. And then some woman gains some courage and she goes and she shakes him out of this stupor almost and says, Sir, do you mind? And he's just... Oh my goodness, I'm, I'm so sorry. We, we've just spent the whole night at the hospital and I've been trying to figure out how I'm going to tell my little girl that she'll never see her mother again. And this woman drops on the ground and starts rolling around and playing with the little girl and being a general nuisance with her when she understands that behind the behavior, behind the color, behind the conduct is a human story, broken and hurting. Do you know what race that girl was? I don't care. Do you? We've got to push beyond, back into the humanity of people. It doesn't mean race doesn't matter. Of course it does. It just means race doesn't matter most. Who might you treat differently? If you simply started to say, I I wonder what the story of his humanity is. I wonder what the story of her humanity is. If we refuse to get caught up in the accessories or the externals or the hashtags, and we started to press into the stories of people, and we start to hear of women whose kids are dying, and we start to hear of, of, of sons whose fathers were absentee, and, and they've just had no guidance, and all of a sudden the church becomes what the church is called to be, regardless of um, race. Um, second thing, fight for the hurting. Um, fight for the hurting. Another thing I love about this story is the resilience of this mother. Uh, I don't know if you noticed why she showed up, but she showed up because she loved someone who was suffering. She didn't show up to advance her own cause. Uh, she didn't show up to kind of, you know, get her ministry or business on the map somehow with Jesus. She was there to see a hurting girl find wholeness. And so she walks into this racially tense volatile situation carrying the concern of a hurting, helpless little girl. And it's interesting. That's what Jesus calls the church to do and calls the church to be, to be this bride, 
that carries the hurts of people, to be this bride that carries the concerns of the widow and the orphan, that stands and fights for those who cannot stand for or speak for themselves, to enter into the mess and the volatility of places where injustice is being carried out. And uh, it's amazing, just like this woman, what we'll be willing to endure when our concern is not about me and my cause and my color, but it's about you and your hurt and your brokenness and the ways in which I'm called to carry that, even if it costs me. And for this woman, it did. She had to endure silence. She had to endure ridicule. She had to endure even some racial slurs. But you know the reason she was not deterred? Because she wasn't there for her. She wasn't there to get you to tell me my life matters. She was there to carry the hurts of a little girl and see someone else made whole. And love will beautifully endure even racial insensitivity. Because it's in it for the good of someone else. I fear that um, some of us have started to react and even retaliate and take racial sides because we don't love anybody. We, we don't care about people. We're not carrying anyone's brokenness, anyone's hurt as our concern. And so all we have to do is advocate for ourselves and our color. And of course, it's going to be easy to put a hashtag in front of what I prefer and advance my cause in that particular case. And for the church, it has to become, again, about fighting for the hurting and the broken and the oppressed, whether they are cops or Klansmen or Democrats or Republicans. If they are hurting and I can enter in and help carry that hurt, I will do that because that's what Jesus calls me to, regardless of what color it is. Wherever we find injustice, we ought to fight to extinguish it for the sake of Trayvon's mom or the kids at school or Officer Ramos's family. Um, If you're black, by the way, don't ever say to me, us black folk need to stick together. What are we sticking together for? My wife is white. My kids are black-ish. My barber is Mexican. What are we sticking together about? We've just got to stick together. Based on our color, we've got to stick together. No, I'm a Christian first. I'm not a black man first. I happen to be black. What are we sticking together for? If you're saying we're going to stick together to carry the hurts of people, regardless of what color they are, let's stick together. I'm with you. But if you're saying let's arbitrarily just put a hashtag and all stick together because we look alike, get out of here. Please. We've got to refuse to categorize that way. We've got to be a movement of people who carry the hurts of the hurting and the broken, regardless of what color they are and regardless of who's standing beside me. This nation is going to be so impacted when black people are rallying for white people's injustices and white people are rallying for black people's injustices and adults are rallying for the unborn injustices and we are not hashtagging what color is most convenient and compatible with me. Now there's a movement. Now darkness is getting pushed back a little bit. I love that she comes carrying someone else's concern. When my daughter was born, um, there was a concern she might have a brain tumor. I can still remember cradling her, her, her head in my 
uh, my palms as I prayed and waited for the neurologist. And you know what I kept thinking the whole time? Oh, God, I hope he's not white. Oh, Lord, help him not to be Mexican. Like, that never even occurred to me. I never thought about that. I was carrying the hurt of my little girl in my hand. And it didn't matter at that point who would save her life. And it didn't matter at that point who would step in to help against an injustice. And it didn't matter at that point who rallied with me for the sake of the abuse. It didn't matter. We together went after something. And all of a sudden, we want to make it about color and hashtag and about race. And let me say this because I don't really have time to finish. But here. Um. If this woman had been distracted by the debate when Jesus says, like, I didn't come for your people. Oh, oh, you want to argue theology? (laughs) All right, well, let's have an argument about the issues. Or if she had chosen to harbor offense when Jesus said dog and used a racial slur. Mm -mm. No, you did it. I'm going to retaliate now, and I'm going to tell you what you are, and I'm going to stand on this side, and you're going to stand on this. If anything in her had risen up, and she had been combative, instead of saying, okay, I'm not going to fight you about that, because there's something greater at stake. If she had entered into the controversy, or if she had retaliated, she would never have got what she came for. And I fear that the church is sabotaging some of the promises Jesus offers us and offers the world through us, because we're getting caught up in the conversation and the controversy and the debate about, okay, well, let's argue this thing out while people are hurting. Let's argue this thing out while Jesus is testing us and seeing, will you get caught up on the debate Oh, you press into my presence. Are you going to get stuck in, well, somebody called me Negro. So I'm done with them. I'm never speaking to them again. They used a racial slur. And so I don't care about them anymore. Jesus said, no, press through even some of the wounds. Because so many of the promises of Jesus are on the other side of wounds, on the other side of forgiveness, on the other side of letting things go. And I wanted it to be like if the church presses through, even when we feel like, ah, my people are being offended. Don't retaliate. Entrust yourself to the one who judges justly and continue to carry the hurts of broken people. Lord, I praise you for, I praise you first of all for this glorious technicality that allowed us to know you. Thank you, Lord, for including us in your family when we were nothing like you. When we had rebelled and we had looted and we had stolen. Lord, you in your grace and in your mercy showed up to bring us in, to carry our hurts to a cross, to make us whole. And so I praise you for that. Lord, I pray that there will be a movement of forgiveness in your church. I pray that there will be a movement of care and that we would be committed to caring the hurts of the people around us, regardless of what race they are. And give us the courage and the strength, like this woman, to even be willing to endure certain slurs because they're more important things, loving the people around us. Bring healing in us. Bring healing through us. In Jesus' name, amen.